The older I get, the more I start comparing my generation to the generation that is living life now. What I mean by that is I look back to my high school days and, and I say to my children all the time, that's not the high school I was a part of. The, the, things are different. And one of the things I ask, and I'm in a, in a family of boys, and so uh, my questions may be different than those that have girls in the room, but uh, it's often I will ask my boys, are there fights in high school? Now, I, I grew up in the 90s, and if you were in my peer group, there were a lot of fist fights in high school. It doesn't seem to be that anymore. Maybe uh, it's all happening in social media, but I, I remember there usually wasn't a week that went by that there wasn't a couple guys getting together and hashing things out, uh, dealing with them by throwing some punches. Now listen to me, time out. I'm not advocating violence, okay? I don't want one of our high school students to get in trouble and the, poli uh, the police or the principal calling and saying, yeah, uh, Junior was in a sermon of yours yesterday and he heard there wasn't enough fist fights and so he started one. I'm not advocating that. It's just different. And I remember one time, I was a junior in high school when I was in PE class and there was a senior. He was the biggest guy in our school. He made even me look small. And he was pestering and harassing one of the smallest freshmen in the PE class. We were doing floor hockey, which causes a lot of pushing and shoving already because of it. And something had transpired in the, in the class time that then moved its way into the locker room. As we entered into the locker room, the big kid shoved the little freshman into the lockers and told him, you better watch it. What the little young guy did, and he was small, one of the smallest kids in our classes, was really crazy because he put up his fists I'm like, what are you doing? And then he uttered words that I will never forget, and it caused everybody to just break out in laughter. He said, you don't know who you're messing with. Yeah, we do. You're little. He's big. In fact, I don't know ever a time that that senior had ever not gotten his way. Hey, little kid, you don't know who you're messing with. And then in that moment, maybe because his pride was being uh, questioned or, or his abilities were being questioned, the bigger, badder senior lunged forward and went to punch the puny little freshman. And what transpired would have come right out of your favorite Chuck Norris or Bruce Lee movie? Punches were thrown, bruises were given, pride was lost, and at the end of all of it, the freshman stood over the senior, and we had whiplash. What in the world just happened? Little did we know that that freshman had been training his whole life in karate classes, and the big guy had been licked. The senior didn't know who he was messing with. In our text today, you're like, why in the world would you bring that up at all? In our text today, we are going to see a group of men who think they are bad, that they are tough. This group of men are coming after Jesus. They're coming in mass. We are told a group of them have been a part of this hassling of Jesus now through the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 5, as we learned last week, Jesus has healed this paralytic man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. 
And even though it was a wonderful thing, even though he should have been given a parade for it, the hassle from the Jewish establishment is growing larger and more hostile as the day goes on. And we are told the reason why is Jesus has broken the man-made rules surrounding the Sabbath, and he has also said that he is the Son of God. He is equal to God himself. Now that's a problem, because if that is true, then Jesus is thinking, and Jesus' words have bearing, not only the people of Israel, but their religious establishment, that would reduce the sham of what the Pharisees were doing in that day down to nothing. Their following would be gone. Their prestige and the possessions that they've had of, of uh, if you will, bilking the people out of their money and out of their religiosity would be gone. And because of that, gone are the days of dialoguing and debating with Jesus. The text tells us right before our passage today that they can inspired all the more to how to kill him. Now, I don't want us to miss that point in the hostility that we read right by it. What that meant is every time Jesus was in public, the men around him were saying, is today the day we assassinate him? Is today the day we pull out a knife and kill him? Is today the day that we stone him? And so Jesus went about all the time wondering, if you will, what are they going to do? Now, we know Jesus doesn't wonder like we do. He knew and he had confidence that it was only going to happen when he laid down his life. And so the text tells us on that very day, that day that they had made up their mind, they had made a pact, we're going to kill him, notice the text tells us that Jesus spoke to them. So Jesus said to them, verse 19, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will show him so that you may marvel. Let's just stop there for a second. Jesus is laying down some massive claims. And what we're going to see today is the reason why they want Jesus dead. Yes, he had healed on the Sabbath, which was a no-no according to man-made rules and regulations. But the text says even more what caused them to want to seek all the more to kill him in verse 18 was that he was calling God his own father and he was making himself equal with God. And so here's Jesus standing before a group of men that want him dead, and Jesus is going to throw shade to whatever they were laying down, and here's what's so awesome about it. We live in a society in a world that, that likes meek and mousy Jesus, the guy smiley Jesus, but Jesus is going to say, listen to me, I am in charge, and either you obey me or else. And he's going to do so by declaring that claim. Then he's going to show you the confirmation that his words are true. And then it's going to lead us to one conclusion or another. That's where we're going to go today. So let's first of all look at the claim. The claim is in verse 18. I am equal with God. The Pharisees of that day hated that statement. The world today hates that statement. If the world knew that that's what Jesus said about himself, I can assure you most of the world would hate Jesus. If the world knew this about Jesus, because let's just be honest, the world thinks that Jesus is, you know, just this nice, 
wonderful teacher who just said nice things, be kind to one another and love one another. But these passages of Scripture never make it onto the the talk shows in our world about this Jesus, this intolerant, this exclusive Jesus. But this Jesus says, I am in control. So here's the claim. Write this down. What is Jesus saying about himself? He is saying, I am above all else. I am to be exalted above all. The Pharisees say, no way. If you're going to be exalted above all, that means we're no longer in control. That means we no longer have a say. The world says, wait a minute, Jesus. If you say you're in charge, then I don't get to do what I want to do. Then I don't get to spend my money as I want to spend it. Then I don't get to spend my time as I want to. Then I can't uh, put myself and my priorities above you. If what you're saying is true, that you alone are to be exalted above all, then that means I have to change. And the Pharisees of that day say, instead of changing, let's just kill him. Let's get him out of our lives. And many today, maybe even some in this place today, would say, no, I I will just get him out of my life. I will do everything in my power to live as if he doesn't exist. And that may be working for you right now, but what Jesus is going to say, that that problem is going to catch up to you at some point or another. So he's laid down this claim that the Pharisees don't like. He's laid down this claim that the world doesn't like. I am the one. I am God. I am equal to our Father in heaven, and because of that, I'm in charge. Because of that, I reign supreme. Because of that, my words matter. Now, here's the problem. Jesus is saying this stuff about himself. Jesus is boasting about these things, and Jesus even says, if you, if you notice in the text, it says that, In verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. You may want to underline that because what Jesus is saying is, I know my context. I know my audience. Well, who's his context and what's his audience? Jewish individuals. There's a culture that Jesus is speaking into that we don't understand what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is the known truth that a person cannot speak about themselves and it be rendered true unless other people speak on his behalf. Now, our legal system does this. Let's say I'm charged with a crime. And I say, well, listen, I'm innocent. And the reason why I'm innocent, I wasn't there at the time of the crime. The court would say, that's great. You can say whatever you want about that time and that moment and that place. Who are your witnesses who can give an alibi to that? So your testimony by yourself is not valid until you have witnesses that can speak on your behalf. The Jewish legal system was built on this premise that unless you had two or three witnesses, it was a moot point. It could not be rendered true. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says, no issue can be resolved unless by the witnesses of two or three. 
In the New Testament, we see in Matthew 18, when it comes to our own personal conflict with one another, that where there's strife and two people see something from two different vantage points, the truth will come out by bringing two or three witnesses who can swear by it. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, don't bring an accusation against an elder unless you have two or three witnesses that can say that your accusation is true. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 says, every issue and every claim in the church can only be verified by two or three witnesses. So Jesus knows that what the claim he's laid down is invalid if he's the only one who's saying it. So notice Jesus moves from this claim. The claim is I am to be exalted above all. Now notice the confirmation. How am I going to confirm that what I have just said is true? Well, I need two or three witnesses. And so notice the confirmation are truths that put an end to all debate. Jesus says, okay, let me explain to you why this is true. In verses 19 through 24, Jesus says, all that you see in me, all that I'm doing is a part of the family business. The things I'm doing, the things you hate about me, in all honesty, you hate God, who you say you work for, because I'm doing what God has called me to do. So there's this battle, this battle between Jesus and the religious establishment. Both are claiming they speak and act on behalf of God. Jesus is going to say, Pharisees, you may pat yourselves on the back. You may give yourselves glory about being the spokesmen of God, but you don't even abide in the word of God. You are anti-God because you're anti-me because all I'm doing is what the Father in heaven has told me to do. And so he says, listen, I'm right and you're wrong. Notice in verse 19 and verse 24 and verse 25, he starts the verses with the phrase, truly, truly. In other translations, verily, verily. What he's saying is, I'm going to speak truthfully with you and you need to listen. It's a moment to say, these are important things. So I'm going to prove to you that what I say about myself is true. But for it to happen, Jesus needs three witnesses. So Jesus says, all right, courtroom, I am to be exalted above all else. I call to prove that fact my first witness. The first witness, I want to call various speakers. Various speakers. So Jesus says, all right, I can't just say this stuff about me. I need others to say these things about me. So let's bring up the first individual. Who's the first individual he calls? John the Baptist. And he makes it an even more important point because notice he says about John the Baptist, he says, you guys like John the Baptist. Even for a season, you liked what he was doing. You took joy in what he was doing. And he says, so let me tell you about John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist, the guy that you like? Now, at this point in the text, we already know from John chapter 3 that John the Baptist is in prison. Many Bible scholars believe that John the Baptist has been put to death, and this is the illusion that he talks about a lamp uh, stopping to shine, that, that maybe John the Baptist has left this world, and likewise his earthly ministry. 
But he says of John the Baptist, this guy you liked, he was your guy, Pharisees. This is what John the Baptist said of me. I came to John on the side of the Jordan. And when John saw me in John 1.29, John the Baptist said of me, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He pointed to me and said, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. John the Baptist said to his disciples that I must decrease so that Jesus might increase. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is said to be by John himself in the company of witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So your guy, Pharisees, John the Baptist, you like him, you were big fans, He says that what I'm saying right now is true. First speaker. Bring in speaker number two. Remember, this is all the first witness. The next one that he brings in, he says, I'm going to call the next witness, and that's God the Father. And they must have been like, what do you mean God the Father? Hey, hey, hey. God the Father hasn't spoken for 400 years. God the Father hasn't spoken audibly since our forefathers heard him on Mount Sinai, and Jesus says, no, 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 wait a minute. God the Father has spoken, and you've you've heard him speak, and like where in the world has God spoken? How has God given testimony? Jesus says, remember that day I was baptized? Now, many Bible scholars believe the very people that he's talking to were followers of John. They liked what John was laying down at the time. And that many of those that he is go- he's debating right now were people that were present at the baptism of Jesus. And so he says, listen, what happened when I came out of the water? You were there. You heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You heard that voice from heaven. So when I say I'm the son of God, I'm not the only one that says it. John the Baptist says it. My father in heaven says it. You were there. You, were, you heard it. But in your rebellion, you're unwilling to listen to the various speakers that spoke this truth. That's not good enough. That's one witness. Let's bring a second witness. Miraculous signs. So he moves from various speakers to miraculous signs, and in verse 36, he says, here's my second proof. And he says the following. In verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works, if you underline in your Bible, underline that word works, that's the miraculous things that he's done, that the Father has given me to accomplish The very works that I am doing bear witness, there's that important word, witness about me. I've done some things he's saying. What has he done? Remember, this comes on the heel of the healing of the paralytic man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. That guy's in the room. Because that guy's turned Jesus in. Now there's this discussion that happens. Okay, Jesus was the one that healed me on the Sabbath. He's the one that should get into trouble. And let's just call him Pete, the paralyzed guy, all right? And so Jesus says, all right, proof number two is Pete. We all know Pete was paralyzed for 38 years. Pete, were you paralyzed for 38 years? Uh Uh-huh. Yep. What happened when you saw Jesus? Well, he told me to get up pick up my mat, and walk. 
And what'd you do? I walked. And what are you doing now? I'm walking. And Jesus is like, ta-da. You're not even disputing that, Pharisees. You're not even concerned about that. What you're concerned about is that I healed him on the Sabbath. Is that? You getting that? This guy's walking around. Everybody knew he was 38 years paralyzed. We all knew him. We all saw him. And now he's walking. I did that, Jesus said, and I did that because I am God. I did that because the Messiah was to come and heal the lame and make them walk again. You see, John keeps telling us about these miraculous signs so that we might believe. But in their rebellion, the Pharisees in our world today say, yeah, you know what, I don't buy it. If I can't see it, I won't believe it. Well, even these individuals saw it. Pete standing there right in front of him, walking around, standing with legs underneath him. And they say, we don't have issue with that. We have issue that you did it on the Sabbath. Various speakers bear witness to the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. Miraculous signs do that. That's why John says uh, Jesus did many other miraculous signs and wonders, but these have been written so that you may believe in God and the one whom God sent, Jesus. Witness one, various speakers. Witness two, miraculous signs. Witness three, numerous scriptures. So now he moves and he pivots, and notice in verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they bear, notice the word, witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. Fast forward now to the end of the passage. Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's another who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for, the, for he wrote of me, but you do not believe his writings. How then will you believe my words? So what Jesus says is my final witness about me that substantiates and verifies the claim that I am to be exalted above all are the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, all that has been written about the Messiah, every one of the prophecies point people to Jesus. And he says, you Pharisees say you love the Bible. You say that in the scriptures that 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 brings you life. The very scriptures, the very words of Moses who you revere as a hall of famer, they point to me and you will not believe. What he is saying is, it isn't that you just don't believe that I am the son of God, that I am to be exalted above all. You're not even a good Jew, You're not even a good follower of Judaism. You're not a lover of the Torah because if you truly were, you would have seen that the scriptures speak of me. Various speakers, miraculous signs, numerous scriptures. You see, when we believe this truth that Jesus is to be exalted above all, 
by faith the scriptures explode and show us over and over again that fact to be true. You don't need to look very far, but Luke chapter 24. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, and he meets two men on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to talk with them, and this is what Luke says. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And the question is, amidst these witnesses, are we going to believe? Are we going to believe? You have two choices in this matter. Believe and obey or disbelieve and do whatever you have to to keep Jesus out of your life. And some of you this morning, maybe you are keeping Jesus at arm's length to the best of your ability. And you're like, listen, Jesus isn't as great as you think he is, Tim, because I've kept him out of my life. I've lived my life in rebellion to him, and I have no issue. Jesus knows that I'm in charge, and he stays away. Well, here's the problem. Jesus says, all right, here's my claim. Here's the confirmation that my claim is true. Now, here's the conclusion. Jesus' conclusion is, obey me or else. Obey me or else. Or else what? Like I just said, I, I don't believe. And I've kept Jesus at arm's length. Maybe you're saying my neighbor doesn't believe and they seem to be doing just fine. And so obviously Jesus isn't right because there's people that are living their lives completely and utterly in rebellion to the lordship and kingship of Jesus. So Jesus, you can't be true. And there's some, listen to me very, very carefully this morning. There are some Christians that are buying into that. And that's why you're filled with dread. And you're filled with worry. And your heart's melted. Because you look at the world and you're like, there is no God. Because if there was a God, this stuff wouldn't be happening. And so my goodness, I thought Jesus was in charge. I thought Jesus was in control. And all this is happening. Hell is breaking out. And you're going to tell me from the pulpit that Jesus is in charge? (laughs) Have you read the paper? Have you watched the news? I don't see that. And notice what Jesus says. Here's the conclusion, obey me or else. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. Now, real quick, there's debate on what Jesus means by that. Debate number one is that what Jesus is saying is, I'm raising people from death to life. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And this is a foreshadowing that Lazarus, who was dead, is now going to be alive. We know from other gospel stories that Jesus has raised uh, Jairus' daughter from death to life. And so what he's saying is, listen, I'm already raising people from death to life, physically. Other Bible commentators say what Jesus was meaning was spiritual. That through my words, I am raising those that... We're blind, dead, and held captive by the devil spiritually. I've raised them. I've made them born again into newness of life. I've raised them back to life. First statement, true. Second statement, true. Third statement, that at my death, burial, and resurrection, at the moment that I am brought back to life, the Bible says, and there were tombs that were opened up, and the dead rose. 
And so there's this thought, what does Jesus mean? I don't think it's all that important because all of those statements are true. By the power of Jesus, Jesus raises dead people, physically, spiritually, and those that are already in the grave. He raises them. But then he goes on. And he says, so, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself, and he has given authority to Jesus to execute judgment because, the, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Listen to me, you, whether here in the room or online, who are keeping an arm length on Jesus, saying, Jesus, you do not have control over me. This is a warning to the world. There is a day coming. He says an hour is coming. A moment is coming where the conclusion of Jesus' claim will be made evident in every person's life. Jesus says there's a day There is a moment happening one day in human history where I, because I am the Son of God, will execute judgment and I will call all tombs to open up. On that great and momentous day, everyone who is in a tomb, those who are dead in Christ and those who are dead in their sin will rise. And on that great and glorious day, we will line up and we will stand before whom? The one who claims in this passage that he is God. And we will walk up to his throne and we will stand before him and every knee and every person will bow and give allegiance to Jesus as the one and only. And on that day, either you will do what you have done through your eyes of faith, and that is praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. You're either gonna do that and say, I've been doing that all my life, and I'm happy to do it again, or for the very first time, For the very first moment in your life, when it is too late, listen to me, when it will be too late, you will bow the knee and you will give glory to the fact that Jesus is to be exalted over all. Listen to me. Those men who are conspiring to kill Jesus will bow the knee to him one day. Those who would crucify him, the evil men that crucified him, they will one day bow the knee. Nero and every Caesar that tried to stop the movement of God's people in the first, second, third, and even fourth century, those Caesars who owned the known world will bow the knee. The great thinkers and, and Renaissance men and women who, who did marvelous things and thought that they were the end unto themselves, they will bow the knee. The scientists and innovators will bow the knee. The great religious leaders of the day, listen to me. Buddha's gonna bow the knee. 
Krishna is going to bow the knee. Muhammad is going to bow the knee to Jesus. Prime ministers and presidents are going to bow the knee to Jesus. You and I, great and small, will bow the knee to Jesus. The question is, will that be the first time you do it, or will it be the millionth time you've done it? Because by faith in this life, you said Jesus is to be exalted over all. So that begs the question this morning. Do you believe it? Jesus has laid a claim. I am to be exalted over all. I am to be your highest priority. I am to be your greatest aspiration. I am to be your most costly possession. Have you bowed the knee? Because if you haven't, Jesus alone has the power, he says in this passage, to execute judgment. And the book of Revelation, written by the same man, the Apostle John says, anyone's name who's not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus is serious about his claim, and you should be as well. It's a reminder for us as God's people Are we living in light of the claims of Scripture? Or are we filled with dismay and dread? Do we allow the fears of this world to overtake us? Or because of the promises and truths of Scripture, we stand resolute, we stand bold, we stand confident. Even though the world fights against us, we stand and we articulate as Jesus did to a world that hates us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except through him. Is that how you live your life? Is that how you go to work? Is that how you go to school? Because there's a day coming that they're gonna hear it, but when they hear it from Jesus on the day of judgment, it will be too late. So let's tell people that now so they can enter into heaven instead of be consigned to hell.